Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here is a uh, writer whose first book called China Boy told the story of, in fictional form, a tough boyhood growing up in San Francisco. The story of Kai Ting, also known derisively as China Boy. And in some ways it became a badge of honor. It's the story of a family where his mother died at an early age in his life of cancer and uh, was taken over by a stepmother who he Mm -hmm. described would have been a member of the SS except all the slots were taken. He chose to uh, find a way to survive against the street bullies of, of the tenderloin and the hate by becoming a boxer at the age of seven. And against the odds, I'll say, too, right? Against he, the odds. He, he was not somebody who you would have picked out as a boxer to be. His no, he was a very slight, slight small boy. Eye, with eyesight to the point of... So when you see this author's biceps on the radio yeah. today... Yes. You may get a sense of... He, he scared me when he walked in the building. I you may get a sense of, uh, of how he's kept himself in shape. Uh, he uh, later uh, attended West Point... And he thanks his West Point English teachers and the acknowledgments to this book. And he also thanks Norman Schwarzkopf. Okay. Will you please welcome Gus Lee to West Coast Live. This, uh, I remember when this, uh, this book first, first came out many, uh, many years ago. In 1938. 1938. <laughs> And it's been translated into 132 languages since. At least. <laughs> At least. Uh, how, how has your writing changed since then? You've written uh, other books? I've just learned. Uh, China Boy was uh, not going to be a novel. It started out as a journal for our daughter when she was seven, asking about her missing grandmother. And if someone had said to me as I began hitting the keys, uh, this has a chance of becoming published when you fictionalize it, I probably would have stopped out of self-consciousness. But because I was dumb and innocent and I was just writing for my daughter, I just wrote unselfconsciously. Um, How did she take these stories of, of, of this fictional seven-year-old boy taking really brutal headshots on the street? Well, she was shocked. I mean, she grew up in a, in, uh, here in, in Northern California in, in very protected streets. Uh, it wasn't an inner-city environment. She wasn't part of an immigrant family. Uh, so her adaptations, uh, for, as for all kids, were demanding, but not quite as traumatic uh, as uh, a lot of us experienced in, in the panhandle and the tenderloin. You, you have other immigrant uh, families, and there's, a, there's a, a boxing coach who also is uh, you know, kind of trying to have a hard scrabble existence out of the tenderloin that, that becomes, in a way, uh, um, a father figure for, for the boy's own sort of absent father who did not have much of a role in the child rearing. That's right. Uh, Tony w- really was my father. Uh, I, I don't think I knew that until I left uh, San Francisco. I left the city at the age of 17. Um, and it was that day of leaving him. I said goodbye to him at the Central Y on uh, Golden Gate and Leavenworth. And I, I shook hands with him. I didn't know I'd never see him again. Uh, but he was my dad. I, I knew at that moment. And, you know, being a dumb kid, I, I hadn't figured it out then. The, uh, have you taught your, uh, your children, who I think are grown now, boxing skills? 
not to Jenna, who is now 23. Uh, Jenna took a self-defense course. Uh, I, I later took some, some martial arts, and some of that was taught to her, but she really learned it more on her own by taking a class. Uh, I taught boxing to Eric, who's now 20, uh, but he's a, a master at, uh, at martial arts, Eastern martial arts, uh, and not the Western. There's a scene in which you which you were called upon to demonstrate Western boxing style to some Chinese elders in San Francisco. The reaction is mixed. Exceptionally. Most of it because of the dramatic lack of talent. <laughs> but nevertheless, at seven, I mean, you were, it was, as, as, and as, as, a little, as a little boy, uh, uh, your, your character being constantly ridiculed on the streets, your, the, the character's instinct was to run, to hide out, not to involve, and, and uh, there was something um, about the way he was told, you're going to have to go meet the beast, the huge bully, uh, otherwise this is never going to end. Exactly. I think that's the magic of the story, if, if, if there is any in it. Um, we all have fears. Uh, we all have, like a, a sign curve, varying points of, of anxiety uh, about our own lives and about the world around us. And, and the one thing that I wanted to do, and Kai Ting wants to do in the book, is, is just run away um, and hide from his fears. He wants his mother to return. Um, from heaven and to embrace him again and tell him everything's going to be okay. Uh, and what Tony's telling him, and Toussaint uh, on the street, his, his street fighting buddy is telling him, is in life we're really expected to stop running and stop blaming. And as difficult as it is, as impossible as it was for me, we're expected to stand and face our fear, as Martin Luther King said, uh, so the fear doesn't master us. And as long as I ran, I, I, I couldn't understand that. And Tony and Toussaint and Toussaint's mom were really teaching me to, to stand. There was a, a, a tradition you describe of, of, uh, of men not shedding tears, of not displaying emotion, and a feeling of shame that goes with that when, you, when, when Kai Ting did. That's right. And plus, the, the panhandle uh, was a very tough uh, African-American neighborhood uh, in which tears were a sign of surrender. And uh, it's very tough to cry and um, stand your ground. It's very tough to cry and uh, be able to face whatever is troubling you. Uh, nonetheless, I, I wept constantly. I mean, all someone had to do was give me a hard look. And although I was legally blind, if they were close enough so I could see the expression, I would burst into tears. So, uh, how, how with that vision did you get into uh, West Point? I, I got four medical waivers to get into the academy, one for being legally blind, one for dramatic uh, asthma, one for scoliosis, and a fourth for flat feet. I, I really didn't... You, re you really wanted to go. <laughs> well, my dad had trained me to go. He, he, uh, that was the debt that this immigrant family was going to pay back to America, was... Uh, I had, I had four older sisters, and I was the only son, uh, and so I was the one who was going to serve. The, how, uh, how closely uh, did you find that you could get to uh, your own memoir uh, in this novel? When did you find yourself veering away and into the comforting world of fiction, if that was comfortable? Well, I, I guess there were three major departures. Um, First is in the initial part of the, the story, uh, which is set in China. That was all science fiction to me. My sisters didn't 
agree as to the, the chronology of events or, or personalities. And so there's a tremendous amount of uh, liberal writing in that, that first part, the part that I did not live. Uh, secondly, the, the story doesn't make total sense. Uh, why does this father allow the evil stepmother to be so vicious? And, um, and that's because I wrote my father out of the story. Uh, he was actually the villain. He was the one who drove the violence. He's the one that drove her violence. He's the one who created enormous uh, spiritual privation in the family. My father was alive. I, I, I did not want to tell that story to my kids. I didn't want them to fear him any more than they already did. Uh, so I just, that was the beauty of the novel. I just wrote him out. And, and third, there are some connections with that chess club in Chinatown that were fictionalized, were romanticized, romancing this idea of uh, caring Chinese elders for kids. And the role of the stepmother, uh, sort of uh, just vicious throughout, and uh, uh, a white woman, graduate of Smith in the, in the novel, uh, and you would have thought that marrying uh, an Asian man uh, would have allowed her to have, uh, th that she would have been open-minded enough not to mock her children. You, you would think. Uh, I would think, as I would read <laughs> Well, he, what's surprising for, for readers of the, of the book, uh, the 14 or 15 who I know of. Uh, what does it say, 42 million sold here or something? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I was never that good with math. But in any event, uh, I underwrote her. So I wrote my dad out. Uh, Edith as was her true name. Her real name was Edith Swinehart. And if I had used that, then no one would have believed it. But uh, she was actually far worse than is described. Um, but in a nutshell, this is it. She believed my father was an eccentric millionaire because, in fact, his employer was one of the richest men in the world, a kinsman, uh, his college roommate uh, in China, in Shanghai. Uh, they were very, very close friends. But curiously, my father marrying a Guaylo, foreign woman, in the 1950s bore greater cost to him with his employer and his employer's family, specifically his employer's wife, than it did with Anglo people looking at an Anglo woman with a Chinese man. And the consequence of that marriage, because the employer recognized that Edith had married my father for the employer's money, and he cut off my father. My father, in his late 40s, not an American citizen, not speaking English uh, with great proficiency, became unemployed. Married to a woman who expected wealth and now lived in a poverty-stricken apartment in a black ghetto. So bitterness pervaded the household. Exceptional bitterness, yeah. You had great teachers, mentors, as you were uh, growing up, or at least certainly Kai Ting did, as, as you recall. And uh, for yourself in, in later life, do you, do you find that a role that you've acquired, too? It, it is. I was, I was raised to that role, and, and it's not in the least bit fictionalized in, in China Boy. I mean, most of this story is, is, is really true. So Tony and Pinoy Punsalong and Bobby Lewis and Carl Miller, Sally Kraft... Um, Lola, whose name is Angelina Costello, who fed me in the YMCA cafeteria. They, these were, this, and, and 
uh, Toussaint's mother, uh, they were all real people. And then in the Army at West Point, um, later in, uh, in education, I, I kept finding, in law school, I kept finding these people who adopted me despite my lack of, of merit. And so now I do the same thing now. We've, we've taken a, uh, an at-risk teen into our home. We were empty nested. We were running around in our underwear. Diane and I were having a great time. And uh, I was tutoring this, this kid who was failing in school from an immigrant family, and he now lives with us. And uh, I mean, I've done community work and volunteer stuff, and, but this is different. And this is much closer to what Tony did with me. What, uh, when, when you say at risk, what does that mean? I mean, it's, it's a word that's often used, but in particular. 1.1 GPA, hadn't, 15 years old, hadn't seen a doctor or a dentist since the age of six, had been raised by his grandmother till she died when he was six, beaten brutally, violently, I mean, far more than I was ever beaten by his father. Uh, and really, I mean, my mother, my mommy loved me until she died when I was five. Um, this young man, um, his mother did not love him, and his father uh, beat him, so at risk. And was there, a, what were some of the nature of the conversation about whether to bring him in, or was it just kind of you and your wife looked at one another one day and said, let's just have him live here? Yeah. Oh, there were long conversations, because uh, I, at, at Root, I'm of, I'm a very selfish person, and everything that I do that uh, approximates being principled or being for the right, I, I, I struggle enormously to get there. So I, I knew this was going to test my, uh, my self-centeredness. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, in the world, I, I, I do ethics work, and I, I look like I've mastered a lot of stuff, but inside I'm, I'm still a, a, a cauldron of, you know, the five-year-old who lost his mom and has nothing for anybody else. So it's all by discipline. So what I was saying was the really important stuff, you know, to Diane, which is I can't walk around in my underwear. And what she was saying is we could, we could give this kid a chance of having a life, of, of really saving him. And uh, so, no, there was a lot of conversation. There was a tremendous amount of discernment. We, we went to counselors about this, friends. And, um, but it came, what it came down to is my conscience would not allow me to watch this kid slide away into oblivion and failure. How did you, how did you meet him? Uh, it, it was through uh, it was through church, you know. One of, that's one of the gifts of, of growing up in an African American neighborhood. I had I, I was the only non-black person in the church, um, and as, as Kathy uh, Goldmark knows, uh, based on my singing, I was never asked to join the choir. So, one of the, the best parts of being in a black church, I, I, I could never really enact. But so I have this church tradition uh, that my mother had, and 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 that these. Uh, Third Baptist and the AME, Zion AME church had. So it was through church that I met this kid. Our church was helping the, the family, which was poverty-stricken and in deep crisis. And uh, I realized, now this kid needs more than money. And uh, how's it taking? He's doing great. I, I mean, it, it is, he is going through the crisis of his life. Um, at first, he thought the crisis was when his grandmother died when he was five. Uh, when he was six, but um, really, he's now confronting his demons. For me, it was cowardice. It was physical cowardice. Um, 
for him, it is laziness, sloth. Sloth has him by his neck, by his liver, by his pancreas, and he is now doing homework. Uh, the result is he's discovered he's very smart. He now is a four-point. I mean, he's an exceptional student. He's gifted in mathematics, and it's going to turn out to be he's gifted in writing, too. We're doing a lot of writing together. Um, as soon as we resolve his back problems, he's very similar to me. It's very striking. Uh, he has a herniated disc. He can't lift weights. Um, but when that gets resolved, um, he's going to learn how to box. He's ready. We have a body bag that our son has used, and he keeps looking at it longingly, waiting for the day. Uh, so as a writer, do you, do you think this is material for something to write about, or is it off-limits? Oh, for me, it's off limits to write, but, uh, but I've, he has a great English teacher right now, a guy named Jeff O'Brien, and uh, uh, Mr. O'Brien is, is teaching Danny to write memoir. So as I read his memoir, um, I, I know Mr. O'Brien felt the same way. I mean, we, Diane definitely, I mean, we read this and we tear up. So he's getting to truth. He's getting to those points of decision in his life as a 16-year-old, where he can, def he can see the right path, and he can see the past, and he has choices now. And comfortable for your other kids? Not at all, no. We asked them, we went to Jenna and Eric and said, uh, you remember Danny, the kid that, uh, that I'm tutoring? Uh, he's failing. We, we really can't pull him out unless we extract him from his home environment. Um, it's really more love than academics. It's support and encouragement, you know, more than homework. Um, how would you feel about our moving him in? And they both said separately, instantaneously, absolutely, Dad. You go do that. That would be great. We'd be, that would be awesome, is the word both of them used. And I said, Jenna, you know, you'd be losing your room because uh, we'd give him your room. Um, and uh, we'd like to at least. And she said, absolutely. It's time for me to move on. Uh, she had gotten her, her first job. She's 23 after graduating from college. And she said, I'm, she does a lot of work in Africa building uh, clean water wells. And so she said, I'm just trying to adjust to leaving Nashville, you know, for two months to be in Ghana and Kenya. Uh, I think I can give up my high school room. So a very, uh, a very different fatherhood for you than your father had toward you. Totally. And, I, and that, that's the miracle. I mean, that's the miracle that the YMCA gave me and, and those churches gave me and those adults gave me, who are not related to me. I was sure when I was in crisis that some magical Chinese woman looking just like my mom would appear and rescue me. And, you know, she never came. Instead, she came in the, in the form of an African-American woman, came in the form of an Italian-American boxing coach, a uh, uh, Filipino-American, French, Chinese, Japanese, uh, 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 karate judo coach, uh, a German-American executive director of the Y, an Italian... American, Romanian, American uh, cook. Uh, those were the magical Chinese mothers who, who showed up. And they helped me uh, be prepared to marry a woman of character, Diane. We've married 26 years now. And, um, and she really tutored me to become a father. Gus Lee, whose memoir novel called China Boy is uh, being released into the... Uh, 
uh, once again under the one, one Book, One City program. And uh, Gus is also going to be uh, featured for a dim sum and tea at Locust, uh, Locust Books, and no, Books Incorporated in Laurel Village, near Locust, and at uh, part of the Litquake, Lit Crawl. There, you're really going to be crawling throughout the Mission District, literally, literally really, at, uh, uh, and, you can, and uh, at uh, the Marsh on Valencia Street. Thank you very much, Gus Lee, for being here. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.